0: Uh, Over the years, I've uh, spent a good amount of time watching nature shows. And so as a kid, I'd watch some Jacques Cousteau. And how many of you watched Jacques Cousteau in the 70s or the 80s? As it got into more recent years, I watched some Jeff Corwin. And my all-time favorite was Steve Irwin, a.k.a. the Crocodile Hunter. And so over the years watching these nature shows, I just have found myself amazed over and over again with how incredible animals are. They're just amazing, aren't they? And sometimes you learn about an animal you didn't know about, and it's just, wow, what an amazing creation. A few quick examples. So the first one we'll put up here, ladies, you respond with a? Yeah, the good old koala, right? So most will call this a koala bear, but no, it's not a koala bear. It's not a bear at all. A koala, as many of you know, is a marsupial. The females have a wonderful little pouch in their abdomen, so their little joeys can be inside their pouch until they get big enough to be on their own. But there's some amazing things about the koala. Something I learned this last week, I knew that they ate eucalyptus leaves, but that's pretty much their entire diet, eucalyptus leaves, which is pretty amazing because eucalyptus leaves have very little protein. Yet somehow these little guys can be strong, build muscle, and climb trees. And another interesting thing eucalyptus is actually poisonous. And so most animals, if they ate eucalyptus leaves, would die. But not the little koala. Isn't that amazing? How about this next one? The star nosed. What's it called? <laughs> The star-nosed mole. Star-nosed mole, pretty amazing. Uh, It looks like it's fresh out of the cantina in the first Star Wars movie, right? Creepy-looking thing. looks like something from an alien planet, but this is an amazing creature. It's virtually blind. But in front of its face are these 22 little tentacle type things. It's part of a sensory organ. In fact, this thing doesn't need to be able to see because, as researchers have studied this star nosed mole, that sensory organ has such a strong sense of, t- of, of touch, it's as complicated as a human eye. That's amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing. And so, God created this little thing. It actually is the fastest eater of any animal on earth, any mammal on earth. It can eat a bug in two-tenths of a second. That's a pretty fast eater. That's even faster than I eat. How about this third one here? Another one of my favorites. You all know the hummingbird. Amazing bird, the only bird on earth that can fly backwards. Many of you knew that. Did you know a hummingbird weighs less than a nickel? Weighs less than a nickel, but the little hummingbird can fly up to 30 miles an hour. And when it dives, it can dive at 50 miles an hour. That's pretty amazing. One last one we'll put up here for you. This one, you have to go pretty deep in the ocean to find. Some of you have never seen a picture of one of these because it's only been found in recent years two miles below the surface of the ocean. Think about that. More than 10,000 feet below sea level. You see the little thing sticking up on top? Because of that, it was called the Dumbo Octopus. The Dumbo octopus lives two miles below the surface of the ocean. It's pitch dark down there. Most octopuses will have an ink sac as a defense mechanism. These little guys don't have an ink sac because they don't need one because the predators can't go down that deep. The predators are a mile above them. Isn't that awesome? God created this wonderful little creature called the Dumbo octopus, and it's awfully cute, isn't it? And so I, I look at these animals, and I'm just blown away. But you know, watching these nature shows over the years, I've heard something spoken by the naturalists over and over again. If you watch these nature shows, naturalists will inevitably be describing an animal and all these amazing details about that animal. And then they'll say this. It is a marvelous adaptation. And I just find myself wanting to scream and say, no, can't you see the truth that's right in front of your nose? It's not a marvelous adaptation. It's a marvelous creation. It's so plain to see, isn't it? This didn't just happen through evolution by accident, and all of a sudden, wow, now we have a little octopus that doesn't need an ink sac that can live two miles below the surface of the ocean. Now we have a little, fly, a little bird that weighs as much as a nickel that can fly backwards and dive at 50 miles an hour. That doesn't da- just happen, does it? It's because God has created it, and so... Sometimes I find myself getting a little frustrated with people that should know better. They're up against some of the most marvelous details in the creation, and they miss that that was there because of a creator. I'd like to say it this way many so called experts who have the privilege of studying the fingerprints of God choose not to believe in the God who those fingerprints clearly point to. Isn't that true? We look at nature, we look at creation, we look at what's out in the universe, all the stars we can see, and if you look at some of those charts of where we fall in the Milky Way, uh, we're just a little speck of dust in a vast universe. And you look at this and we're overwhelmed. We are looking at the fingerprints of God, and those that study the fingerprints the closest oftentimes are the very ones that deny the Creator that placed those fingerprints there. It's sad, really, isn't it? That's true in our day, and it was true in Jesus' day. In John 11, we saw last week that Jesus performed his most eye-popping miracle of all. His friend Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. He was decomposing. We looked last week at, at what a mortician has described happens to a body that has not been embalmed, a body that has not been refrigerated after four days. The organs are largely digested within the first four days upon dying. This was a man that as Martha said so plainly, he stinketh. Right? That's what Martha says. What are you doing rolling the stone away, Jesus? He stinketh. You don't want to do that. And Jesus raises the mummy from the dead. One of his most eye popping miracles, but you look at the response to that eye popping miracle, and we're going to see in the verses we look at today that so many still refused to believe in Jesus. They were looking at the very fingerprints of God right in front of their noses. And they somehow didn't believe in him anyway. So sad. Well, let's pick up here in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. John 11, beginning in verse 45. If you're there, please say amen. Here we go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here this man is performing many miraculous signs. If if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. I don't know for sure that they were whining, but I, I'm guessing they were. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. Uh, you know nothing at all. Uh, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people, then then the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so they might arrest him. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Please pray with me. Father, here we are today. And I am a flawed vessel, a flawed preacher and pastor, trying to communicate your living and perfect word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak. And Father, that I, to a large extent, remain silent. Lord, speak through me. And I pray that you would give each of us in this room and each of us joining us online ears to hear and hearts soft and ready to receive your word. And all God's people in agreement said, Amen. 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 Well, back in verses 18 and 19, John tells us that Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem and that a number of people had come to comfort Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died. And so when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the mummy literally hobbles out of the tomb, there was definitely an audience, no doubt about it. There was an audience for that miracle. Every man, every woman, every child in that audience had a big decision to make. They had to decide whether or not to believe the truth that was as plain as day, that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God, and that Jesus was Lord of both the living and the dead. They could either receive and embrace that truth, or they could disbelieve and reject it. It was right there, but they had to make one decision or another. They, They couldn't be riding the fence. Here in verses forty five through fifty-three we see a a sharp contrast between the reactions of certain people in the crowd. According to verse forty five, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Isn't that encouraging? They put their faith in him. That's great to see. But what about the others? According to verse 46, others who were there at Lazarus's tomb went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's clear that they did not believe in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? A group of people, they see the exact same thing. They think back to what had happened with some of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Moses, who God used to part the Red Sea and help usher in those plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, They look at uh, prophets like Elijah and then after him, Elisha. And they did some amazing things, able to heal the sick and multiply oil and in at least one or two occasions raise the dead. But even those great prophets from the Old Testament had never done something like Jesus had just done right in front of their eyes. Taken a man who was decomposing in his tomb for four days and regenerate within his body millions of cells that had already largely decomposed and rebuild those organs inside of him that had largely decomposed and the swelling in his body that would have naturally taken place after four days to reduce the swelling, to return his color, to get his heart beating again and his lungs breathing again and have him come right out of that tomb in a split second. Jesus did all of that. Not even Moses, Elijah, or Elisha had ever done something like that. And yet some don't believe sad, isn't it? It's remarkable. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, Jesus will not be set aside or put off. He leaves no compromising middle way. Each individual must decide what to do with him. Deny or submit. Reject or believe. Embrace him and experience freedom. Or kill him and preserve the illusion of power. After Jesus exercised power over death, many religious leaders began to break ranks and believe in the Son of God. That's encouraging to see. Because most of the time when John, the gospel writer, uses the term the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leaders, specifically the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So when it says many of the Jews put their faith in Jesus, that certainly included some of those Pharisees that had been his biggest critics. Most of them still stayed stubborn as unbelievers, but at least many of them, he says, did turn to faith in Christ. I could say it this way. You either believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. You either accept Him or you reject Him. You either love Him or you hate Him. There's no middle ground. It might surprise you to learn that most people who witnessed Jesus's amazing miracles didn't become His followers. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? You feed the 5,000 with five biscuits and two sardines. And 5,000 was just the men. You count the women and children, over 10,000 people with five biscuits and two sardines. That's amazing. You raise the dead, a guy that's been dead for four days. You heal the lepers. You open the eyes of the blind man who was born blind. His eyes had never worked. All of these things, you'd say it's a no-brainer to believe in Jesus. But most people didn't believe in him. You would think that today and In 2023, almost 2024, that most people, with all the evidence we have of who Jesus was and what he did and the proof we have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he did, in fact, conquer death, you would think that most people today, it would be a no-brainer, they would accept Jesus, but we all know most people don't. It is sad. Most people don't accept Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus back then. They don't accept Jesus today. And we ask the question, why not? Why don't people accept Jesus? And I think the answer is really simple. People don't accept Jesus because they don't want to. It's really as simple as that, isn't it? And some people will give this smokescreen excuse, well, it, it doesn't stand up to intellectual rigor, the, the life and the ministry and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stand up to intellectual rigor. You know, that's just a bunch of wives' tales and fairy tales. They're just blowing smoke. I have, to, I have to be careful with some young people. I said that to a young guy a few years ago. Have I ever told you this story? So <laughs> a mom brings in her teenage son. Can you counsel counsel with my son a little bit? And he's been acting out at home, causing problems. And so I talked to the young man, told him to listen to his mom, and you know because she's the authority in his life. He needs to pay attention and not give her such a hard time. And as he was leaving my office at the end of the meeting, I said, Now, I, I just got to ask you, have you been blowing smoke? And he says, You know what? Yeah, I have been smoking a little bit of pot. And I said, wow, that was a confession I wasn't even fishing for. I was just, my generation, are you are you shooting straight with me? And he's thinking, but anyway, so sometimes the intellectuals will be blowing smoke. If they seriously research the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And so when it comes down to it, why don't people accept him? Because they don't want to. They don't want to. Believing in Jesus back then, in Jesus' day, most of those Pharisees did not believe in him. Believing in Jesus would require them to change. And most people don't want to change. Believing in Jesus would require them to change their preconceived ideas about the Messiah. He's not going to be on a white stallion leading an army to overthrow Rome. That's not the Messiah. That's not who he was going to be. That wasn't his mission. Believing in Jesus would require them to change the way they sweep their secret sins under the rug. They look all prim and proper and righteous where everyone can watch them. And then behind closed doors, they're like dead men's bones, Jesus told the Pharisees. And so they'd have to change the way they behave behind closed doors. Believing in Jesus would require them to change the way they worship and change their priorities and change the way they treat Samaritans because they hated Samaritans. And Jesus wanted them to love the Samaritans. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those that persecute you. Most people don't want to do that. Most people don't want to change. So despite the crystal clear evidence right in front of their noses that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ and the Son of the living God, many Jews who had witnessed one of the greatest miracles of all time chose not to believe in Jesus. Instead, they chose to rat him out to the Pharisees in Jerusalem. That's what some of them did. They ratted him out to the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. So you look at verse 46. Says some unbelievers went to the Pharisees and told them about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Next verse, verse forty-seven. The Pharisees told the chief priests, and together they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem—that uh, was kind of like a combination of a parliament and a supreme court—and so they created the rules for the Jewish people, particularly any rules related to the Jewish religion, to Judaism. But not only that, they served at the Supreme Court. They were the highest court in the land, so they would weigh in on decisions needed in both civil and criminal cases. And so they were like this parliament and this Supreme Court ruled into one, and they had 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And when the high priest joined them, Caiaphas, it says here in the text, when Caiaphas joined them, there were 71 on this council. So our own Supreme Court has nine justices. The Jewish Supreme Court had 71. That's a pretty big court, isn't it? Okay, they didn't always meet together, but it seems like on this occasion, all 71 probably did meet. And there were two main groups on the Sanhedrin. First of all, the Pharisees. We've talked about them a lot in the last several months. They were Jesus' number one critics in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Any gospel account you look at, you'll find the Pharisees over and over again coming against Jesus. It didn't matter if he was in northern Israel, in Galilee, or down in Jerusalem in the south. The Pharisees consistently came against Jesus. The Pharisees didn't like him because the Pharisees didn't like Jesus not participating in ceremonial hand washing. How dare you not wash your hands ceremonially before you do certain things? And the Pharisees didn't like the fact that Jesus sometimes would do things on the Sabbath like heal people that were sick. How dare he do that? The Pharisees hated him working on the Sabbath healing people. They didn't like that. And they didn't like it when he would say things to the Pharisees like, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. For some reason, the Pharisees didn't like that. But actually, most of the Sanhedrin, that group of 71, most of the Sanhedrin were not Pharisees. They were actually Sadducees. Some of you have learned this in the past. Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books in the Old Testament, the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't accept the other 34 books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see, right? So the Sadducees... They didn't believe in any afterlife, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in demons. And so most of the Jewish ruling council were Sadducees. And something else very important to know about the Sadducees, they hated Jesus for a different reason than the Pharisees. They didn't care so much that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath and calling the Pharisees hypocrites. The Sadducees thought they were hypocrites too. They didn't get too upset with these things. But what really upset them was the idea of losing their power. What really upset them was the idea of Jewish, this Jewish leader, the king of the Jews, coming in, Jesus, and causing the Romans to get upset and kicking them out of their position that they loved so much. That's why the Sadducees hated Jesus. William Barclay says it this way. He says, The Sadducees were intensely political. They were the wealthy and aristocratic party. They were also the collaborationist party. As long as they were allowed to retain their wealth, comfort, and position of authority, they were well content to collaborate with Rome. It's interesting. And then Chuck Swindoll adds this to it. Chuck Swindoll writes, "...the Sanhedrin together, the Pharisees and Sadducees in that ruling council, they placed a high priority on maintaining the uneasy balance between Rome's desire to dominate its subjects... And the yearning of the Jewish people for independence. Normally, the high priest, who was appointed by Rome, and the Sanhedrin, who advocated for independent-minded Jews, they engaged in a kind of public rivalry, each pretending to work against the other, yet neither really wanting anything different. Change of any kind would threaten to strip everyone of their power. So you get the idea of the politics going on here, right? And so you've got King Herod, who says, this guy is going to be your high priest. And he places the high priest, he handpicks him and puts him as the highest leader of the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't care for that too much. The Jewish people, in a somewhat more democratic manner, would get to put their blessing on the other 70. They were slightly more chosen by the masses than certainly the high priest had been. So why were the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin so worried about Jesus? Because Jesus was upsetting the apple cart. Yeah? Yeah. Most members of the Sanhedrin hated Rome, but they hated more the idea of getting Rome upset to the point that Rome would kick them out of the temple and strip them of their authority, their wealth, and their comfort. In other words, they were afraid of Rome coming in and kicking them out of their little sandbox and taking their sand toys. Wah, wah, wah. Who cares if he's the Son of God? Who cares if he's the promised Messiah? I don't want to lose my position. I want to, I don't want to lose my comfort. I, want, I don't want to lose my power. And so they came again came out against Jesus so hard and so ferociously because their own position and power and comfort meant more to them than the truth. The high priest Caiaphas says in verse 39 or verse 49 he says to the rest of the council you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Isn't that interesting? What he says there is prophetic and he doesn't even know it. What he says there, God had in mind for him to say. But Caiaphas said it for a completely different reason than God had in mind for him to say it. Because Caiaphas, what he means by this is, you guys are a bunch of fools. You don't know that it is better for us to kill Jesus and keep our position so that Rome doesn't come after us than it is for us to accept Jesus and Rome to come after us. And so he's only concerned about his own power and the Sanhedrin's own power. If you look at a few other translations, this is actually what Caiaphas is saying to the, the rest of the Sanhedrin. The contemporary English version says his words this way, you people don't have any sense at all. Good news translation. You've You guys are fools. What fools you are. And then I like how the Living Bible says it. You stupid idiots. How would you like to have a boss that talks to you like that? Some of you are like, I have. Wouldn't be very pleasant, would it? So do these Pharisees and Sadducees in the group of 70 on the Sanhedrin like what their high priest is saying to them? Not at all. But you read a few verses down and you find that they actually end up agreeing with what he says. They hate what he says, but they hate Jesus even more. They hate what he says, but they love the idea, hey, let's get rid of Jesus so we can keep the status quo. That's sad. Caiaphas had in mind, let's get rid of Jesus so we can keep our position. But God knew all along what Caiaphas said was prophetically true. It is better that Jesus dies and basically goes through hell so you and I don't have to die and go through hell ourselves. Amen? Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John points out in verses 51 and 52, God led Caiaphas to speak these words, but God had something much bigger and much deeper in mind than Caiaphas did. Caiaphas was focused on the temporary threat of Rome. God was focused on the eternal threat of hell. Caiaphas was concerned about the nation of Israel perishing physically. God was concerned about the nation of Israel perishing spiritually. Caiaphas' motive for sacrificing Jesus was completely selfish, but God's motive for sacrificing Jesus was completely selfless. Thank God for his great plan. Well, I'm sure the 70 members of the Sanhedrin weren't too jazzed about being criticized by Caiaphas, their high priest but they were ready to fall in rank behind him because they loved that idea of getting rid of Jesus. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Picking up in verse 54 here, notice what it says there. Starting in verse 54, "...therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples." When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover they kept looking for Jesus and as he stood in the temple area or as they stood in the temple area they asked one another what do you think isn't he coming to the feast at all but the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was he should report it so that they might arrest Jesus I really wanted that to sink in because that is an important part of Ending this passage here today. Remember that most of the time when John mentions the Jews, he is talking about the Jewish leaders uh, in Jerusalem, those that were a part of the Sanhedrin. And so he's making it very clear that when the Jews were looking for Jesus, it was specifically the Jewish leaders. And so when they spread the word, hey, if you find out where Jesus is, let us know so we can arrest him. It's not like they were posting throughout Jerusalem this wanted poster for Jesus. You know, wanted, Jesus of Nazareth, dead or alive. It's not like they were posting this throughout town, but they made it clear throughout their ranks. If any one of you yahoos find out where Jesus is and don't tell us, you're in hot water. And so as the Galileans were coming in to celebrate Passover, they were oblivious to the fact that, that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted to murder Jesus. But those Jewish leaders made sure they spread the word through their own ranks and through the residents in Jerusalem who sided with them. And so Jesus is now, more than ever, a wanted man. He withdraws to the village called Ephraim. Now, we don't know exactly where the town of Ephraim was. We put up this map here, and in the middle of the screen, you see this gray area. In Old Testament times, there's gray area was called like the region or the tribe of Ephraim. And that was 10 miles or so north of Jerusalem. So that could have been where the town of Ephraim was or the village of Ephraim. Uh, others think maybe it was on the east side of the Jordan River. If you look at the orange shaded area, uh, that was the forest of Ephraim. So possibly that little village was over there. So he was either 10 miles north of Jerusalem or maybe 30, 40 miles Uh, northeast of Jerusalem. So he's off the beaten path a little bit, but don't think that it's saying that he vacated Israel, that he left Israel and went to some other country. He didn't. So when he kept his distance from the Jews, it's referring to those Jewish leaders. He kept his distance from the Jewish leaders except until it was God's time. I, I would imagine that when Jesus goes to Ephraim here, it's probably the month of February. And we know what happens in late March, early April. It's the time of Passover comes. Jesus will return one last time to Jerusalem. It will be God's timing. And he will be crucified for the sins of the world. Well, there was this quote I came across this last week I wanted to share with you from F.B. Meyer. Uh, he was an early uh, 20th century evangelist. He was a friend of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And he wrote these words I think are just so deep. He wrote, Unbelief. Puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. That's true, isn't it? Read that with me out loud so it can sink in a little bit. Unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. That is really true, isn't it? And you think of your life and the decisions you make, maybe even decisions you make on Christmas Eve, maybe even decisions you make for you and your family on Christmas Day. Sometimes we are just crystal clear that I am going to make my decisions based on what God's will is, right? I'm going to make the decision based on what God's will is. So God's will comes first. Other times we will push God's will aside because my circumstances are saying, you know what, this would be better for you. This would be better for me. And so I put God on the back burner and my circumstances rule the day. And I think F.B. Meyer makes a great point that if our circumstances rule the day, that actually is a sign of unbelief. Everything we do as Christians should be done in faith with God first. God is our first priority. We put him first, and as we put him first, he dictates how we handle our circumstances and how we respond to our circumstances. I thought that was a really good point that he made. I want to share with you three questions of faith that we can pull from this passage we looked at today. Question number one, please read this out loud with me. Is there any truth that you've been resisting? One more time. Is there any truth that you've been resisting? We look today at these Pharisees, That uh, and, and those in the crowd that were there at the tomb of Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. We looked and saw how many of these had the truth that was right in front of their noses. And they rejected it anyway, didn't they? They rejected the truth. They resisted the truth. Some of you here today are not followers of Christ and you know that you're not right with God. You know that you've been resisting the truth. God has been tugging at your conscience, telling you to get right with God, and you kept responding with resistance. Some of you here today are saved, but you're also resisting the drawing and the will of God. You're resisting the truth. Some of you may be resisting truth about your marriage. You've been believing a lie about how great it is, or maybe a lie about how terrible it is. But you're resisting the truth about your marriage. Some of you might be resisting the truth about your own children, your kids. Some of you might be resisting the truth about your messed up priorities. Others may be resisting the truth about your addiction or about your laziness. Some of you claim to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you're not really following Jesus. The truth is you're really following yourself. You're doing what you want to do, not what Jesus has called you to do. Christ is calling you this morning to receive the truth, to know the truth, to accept the truth, to act upon the truth. And just as Jesus promised in John eight thirty one and 32, if you hold to his teaching, he says, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth. And say it with me, and the truth will set you free. Amen? Isn't that good? Know his truth. Live his truth. And his truth will set you free. When you realize that you are imprisoned by your own unbelief, stop resisting the truth of Jesus Christ. Believe it, receive it, live it out, and regardless of the consequences, as you know Christ and you follow Christ, you will be free indeed. Amen? Amen. Question number two. Read this with me. When facing an important decision, do you ask, what is in my best interest or what is in Christ's best interest? Ouch. That one hits close to home for some of us. Most people, even most Christians, take the path of least resistance. They make the decision that's easier. That doesn't get them in hot water with their family or their friends or their boss or their teacher at school. In certain situations, we refuse to do what is morally right because we don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be criticized. We don't want to be marginalized. We don't want to be passed up for a promotion. We definitely don't want to get an F on a midterm if we speak the truth and go with what our conscience is telling us to put on that paper. So to save our own skin, what do we do? We throw Jesus to the wolves. Like many in that crowd that saw with their own eyes Lazarus coming out of that tomb, they turn around and they go to the Pharisees and they throw Jesus to the wolves. How sad. Some of us do it on a different level, but much the same thing. How many times have we chickened out saying and doing what was safe and easy instead of saying and doing what was morally right and what would build Christ's kingdom? More times than we'd like to admit, probably. When facing an important decision, do you ask, what is in my best interest? Or do we ask, what is in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's best interest? Amen? I hope we do that. Finally, question number three. Are you ignoring, say this with me, Are you ignoring the inner voice of the Holy Spirit warning you to stop some behavior you know to be wrong? This is another ouch. Are you resisting the Holy Spirit prompting your conscience, warning you to stop some behavior you know to be wrong? I don't know what shameful things you've done. I don't know which foul words have come out of your mouth. What lustful thoughts have gone through your heads? Men, Right? I don't know what they are, but the Holy Spirit inside you knows, doesn't he? He's, he's not a stranger to any of it. And for some of us, he's been sending us signal flares, shooting them off, waving flags and saying, abort, abort, abort. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Turn from your sin. The Holy Spirit has been warning us. Warning us that what we're doing is wrong. There's no better time than right now to stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing, right? Start doing the right thing, no matter the cost. I want to share with you one last amazing creature. This one I've shared with some of you in the past. It's got quite quite a kisser on that one, huh? Yeah, I heard it out there. Anglerfish. This little fish became famous with the first Finding Nemo movie. Dory and Nemo, or not Nemo's dad, what's his name? Yeah, thanks. Marlin and Dory are floating through the uh, Pacific Ocean trying to find Nemo because he's lost. And they dive, 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 and they get to the depths in the darkness. And all of a sudden they see a light. And they do what most little fishies do when they're down in the depths of the darkness. This little guy lives about a half mile below the surface of the ocean. So some 3,000 feet below the surface. It's pretty dark down there. And so when these little fishies swimming down there see this light, oh, they just want to go toward the light, don't they? Because they're not used to seeing light way down there. Well, it turns out the anglerfish has a marvelous adaptation. No, it doesn't. It has a marvelous creation. It's got a little antenna that comes out of its forehead, and on the tip of that antenna are millions of bioluminescent bacteria that light it up like a light bulb there in the ocean depths. And so it's a wonderful little fishing lure for the angler fish. And so the little fishies will swim closer and closer to the light, swim toward the light, swim toward the light. And by the time they see what that light bulb is attached to, by the time they see that ugly kisser that that light bulb is attached to, it's too late and those teeth chomp them. And that little fishy is a goner. And I got to thinking about that this last week. Isn't that what Satan does? And so often through life, we want to take the path of least resistance and we see the the easy solution. We see the easy path. We see the popular way, the one that will make our family happy, the decision that will make our friends happy, the decision that won't get us in hot water at work or at school or with our neighbors. And so, so often we go for the low-hanging fruit. We swim toward the little light, and as we get closer and closer and closer By the time we see the ugly mug that that light is attached to, it's too late. Because Satan is an expert at dangling little lights in front of us. Come on, just take hold of the low-hanging fruit. Just do the easy thing. Take the easy path. You know what? It'll be okay. Your conscience will be just fine. You, You do the easy thing. And so often we swim toward what's easy. We move toward what's easy. And we're going to end up regretting it for a very long time, some of us for eternity, if we keep swimming toward what Satan has dangled in front of us and reject the will of God in our lives. It won't be easy. It won't be popular. But Christ guarantees us if we will take hold of the truth, if we will obey the truth, if we will walk in His truth, He truly will set us free and we will never, ever regret it. Let's not make the same mistake these guys that ratted out Jesus to the Pharisees made. Let's not take that truth that's right in front of our noses and push it aside because it's easier to not follow Jesus in this life. Let's take hold of the truth and let's follow him this Christmas season and follow him into the new year better than ever. Lord Jesus, thank you once again for this marvelous, marvelous account of raising Lazarus from the dead. He was dead, and You made him alive again. And Lord Jesus, I look at my own life, and I realize that spiritually I was dead, and You made me alive again. I was rotting and decaying and on my way to hell, and You saved me. Thank You, Jesus. And I pray that everyone here, Lord, would make that same decision Realizing that life is hopeless without Christ. Life is empty without Christ. May we believe your word. May we accept your truth. and May we walk in obedience to your commands. I pray, O God, if there's anyone in this room today, anyone watching this broadcast that has never accepted you as Lord and Savior, that they would pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, please have mercy on my soul. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I have sinned against You. I have broken Your commands. I have chosen not to follow You because I didn't want to. But I want to now. I invite You into my life, Lord Jesus. Please take the driver's seat. Please take the wheel. And I will follow You for the rest of my life. I believe in You. I trust You. And I will obey you from this point forward. In Jesus' name.